There was a man named Paul, and he was from a place called Tarsus, which is found in modern-day Turkey. And he encountered that Jesus, the living Christ. His life before that had been filled with religion, passionate religion, but then he encountered Jesus Christ, who had risen from the dead, and realized that no one in all the earth or heavens could compare to that Jesus Christ. And so committed was he now to that Christ that he set out on mission, journeys. He left his land, the land of Asia Minor, the land of Turkey, and made his way towards other countries to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to proclaim that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, was alive, proclaimed the living God. He left his land and went to cities along the Aegean Sea, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, and ended up in Athens. And in Athens, he preached a sermon that has been one of the great sermons that is found in the scriptures. I'd like to preach that sermon this morning, Acts chapter 17. It's the sermon that's called the Mars Hill Sermon. It's called Mars Hill Sermon because he preached it from a bald rock outcropping in Athens, which is situated in sort of a triangle. The uh, temple of Athena is on the hill on, on one side of the triangle. The marketplace, the ancient agora, is found in the valley below. And right at the apex of that triangle is this place called Mars Hill, the place where Paul preached this great sermon. And of course, the temple to Athena is that signature picture that most of you have seen of the city of Athens. It's kind of a, a, a great, um, uh, not coincidence, but uh, a great companion to the sermon this morning that, that Jeff Baldwin will be here tonight, who's been ministered for so many years in that very setting. But on that, on that rock face, in that place, Paul preached a sermon. And that sermon was to declare that there was no God like the living God. That there's no God like Jesus Christ. That there's no comparison to Christ. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17... I want to, uh, before we begin, mention that uh, this is really a revisiting of Mars Hill. I, I've had an opportunity to actually preach there twice on that very setting with some of you in attendance. But this sermon, this sermon in Acts chapter 17, has been used as a biblical script for, uh, to validate a wide, a, a wide range and a, and a wild range, really, of strategies for evangelism. Um, in fact, uh, in a number of, uh, just a, a few examples of how that particular sermon is used, uh, uh, it's been used to, to uh, raise up a, a belief system in an unknown God, because Paul happens to mention there the unknown God, the, 
the, the God that you have portrayed as unknown, I want to proclaim to you. Many have um, developed strategies of evangelism using movies and pop culture to preach biblical values. The starting point of movies and pop culture based on the Acts 17 as a strategy. Claiming that you can't start with Jesus and the Bible, you need to start with the... uh, popular cultural ideas of the day and then find your way ultimately to Christ. I want to re-examine and see if Paul really did that or not because it's been suggested that he did. Others have used this text to declare that unless you have a, a soul patch and quote Coldplay lyrics from a fair market or a fair trade coffee house, you're not going to be heard by anybody. Or unless you have a Bible in one hand, or uh, sorry, a beer in one hand and a Bible app in the other hand, that the culture is not going to listen to you. And many have based these strategies and tactics on Acts chapter 17. I'm not sure that Acts chapter 17 really teaches these kinds of things. Is that what Paul was trying to fire up? Is this the different evangelistic strategy that he is proclaimed to have leveled on the people in that day. I want to suggest to you that, in fact, um, today as we look at sharing the good news with the intelligent but ignorant mind, I I want to um, answer the question, is Paul really using here a radically different strategy for evangelism? Is this really the same gospel with multiple approaches that that we can embrace from this text? Certainly there were multiple cultures that Paul was addressing. If you, in fact, look at Acts chapter 17 and beginning of verse 16, it it says there, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, that's a culture, and the God-fearing Greeks, that's a culture, He talks about then going to the marketplace. That's likely a different culture as well. Probably a culture of non-religious people. He was in the synagogue with those who were religious. He's in the marketplace with those who are non-religious. And then it says he he went to a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The intelligentsia of the day. That's a different culture. The culturally elite. And then ultimately they drag him to the Areopagus, it says, which is really the supreme court of of Athens at the time. Another culture. So there's no question that Paul is addressing in this very small section here multiple cultures of people. But the question isn't does he address multiple cultures or do we address multiple cultures, but in fact do we use multiple approaches. And, And I'm not here to suggest that we don't necessarily use multiple culture or multiple approaches. But I want to submit to you this morning that I think Paul started in the same place with every culture. He started with Jesus and Jesus as the living God, resurrected from the dead. And I think I can prove it to you. Notice as we continue and look here, he says the Epicureans and the Stoics were saying, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
He wasn't starting with movie clips or books or ideas of the time, although he does quote their poets, as do most preachers of the gospel, quote other things. But it says here that his starting point was, in fact, the preaching of the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. In fact, that's why the philosophers of the day dragged him to the Areopagus, the Supreme Court. They said that he, as you continue reading, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Because all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said... Now I want to pause there and I want you to note that he's talking to the rational mind and the anti-rational mind. He's talking to the modern mind and the postmodern mind. If we back up a little bit when he was in Thessalonica, it says in chapter 17, verse 2, that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. He preached from the scriptures, reasoning the truth of Jesus Christ, proclaiming that this Christ rose from the dead. If you go to Berea, it says that he went into the synagogue, verse 10, and and the Bereans were uh, of noble character, and they examined the scriptures every day. In Thessalonica, he's preaching the word of God, or, uh, the same way as he preached the word of God in, in Thessalonica, he preached it in Berea. Using the same word, when he gets to Athens, he reasoned in their synagogue, and reasoned in the marketplace from the truth of God's word, and then reasoned with the philosophers that Jesus was the Christ and that he'd risen from the dead. So I think as we move into this text, I really truly believe that Paul preached the same gospel everywhere, and his starting point was always Jesus Christ, him crucified, and risen again. That's our message. That's our message to every culture. That's our message to every different setting. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again. It's an amazing message that God has given to us. And so from that platform, he stood up in whatever culture God led him into and proclaimed the truth. And this morning, he stands before the Areopagus, the Supreme Court of Athens, the philosophers all around, the Epicureans, the Stoics, the intelligentsia of the age, the cultural elite are standing there, and Paul is preaching Jesus, crucified and risen again. And he stands before them and takes note of their culture and challenges three main things of that culture over against Christ, the living God, risen Savior, one who has come to rescue us from our sins. That's the contrast. The contrast is this culture versus the kingdom of God and the culture of Christ. That's the presentation. So as we look at the text, let's pause for prayer. Father, I pray this morning 
as we re-examine and revisit this great sermon preached several thousand years ago. Lord, it's, it's truly amazing how relevant, how up-to-date, how present the contrast between the culture of the Athenians and the culture of the Canadians and the culture of Christ in this great comparison this morning. So, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see ourselves. Lord, would you, would you so enliven this moment with your spirit that it would be as if Paul had come to revisit us and to preach this sermon as if he were looking at Canada, as if he were staring at the culture of Oshawa, the culture of Calvary, Baptist Church. Oh God, I pray this morning that you would bring your word alive to our hearts for its intended purpose to change us, to transform us, to alarm us, to, aw to awaken us, to correct us, oh God, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I, I want to present to you from Paul's text here three challenges to the culture that I think are, are completely relevant to us. And he stands up, it, it says in verse 22, and I want to read the text and then we'll come back to it. He stands up and he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, verse 23 now, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him... We live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. What were the results? The sermon, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. I think as... Paul reaches out here to challenge the culture. He challenges our culture as well in three main areas. What is shaping you? How do you determine reality? And have you prepared for judgment? Those three things seem to me to be a, 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 a really valid 
uh, approach to outlining the gospel to whatever culture you happen to find yourself in. What is shaping you? What is shaping your life? How do you determine the ultimate reality of life? And, and, and have you prepared yourself for judgment? And I want to take that framework this morning and point out that uh, I really believe that's, that's the uh, central questions that Paul used. Paul did not zero in simply on one small setting here where their own po poets had said, we are his offspring, and then somehow try to redeem the poets and the message of the poets to, to somehow make the leap and the bridge to the gospel. He started at the gospel... And, and made the point that even some of your own pagan poets have noted that people are the offspring of God. Okay? So what does he first notice here as he surveys the landscape of the culture? He notices the emptiness of idolatry. And, the, the, and idolatry is empty because it replaces God. You notice he says here, I see your your city is full of idols. And interestingly, the contrast in Paul's emotion was this. Paul, it says, was full of distress. Paul noticed they were full of idols, and emotionally, he was full of distress. Why? Because idolatry is the complete opposite of why people were made in the first place. Paul was so distressed, and we ought to be distressed, of emotion and heart, when we see people choosing the exact opposite of why they were made in the first place. The purpose of people, from the very beginning of, uh, of the record of God's word, is that people might worship and serve and bring creation under the domain and the dominion of living God. That was the purpose. That is the purpose of humanity. That we, might, we were made to worship and to serve and to bring all of creation under the dominion of the living God. And here Paul sees a city completely turned upside down. Completely given over to the exact opposite of that purpose. That distressed him immensely because idolatry, the replacing of God with things made by human hands, and that's, that's exactly what idolatry is. In fact, um, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 8, it says this in the Old Testament context, their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their own hands, to what their fingers have made. Paul is looking here at all kinds of representations of gods made by the hands of man. They were worshiping the things that they had made with the works of their own hand. That's the complete opposite. They have exchanged the glory of God for created things and are worshiping them. It's a reversal of God's order. The created things were now ruling over people. That's what idolatry is. It seems absurd when we sort of logically sit and listen to a presentation and a proclamation of it. But our culture, our culture today is full of this. 
So what does God think about idolatry? Well, from the very first record of God's intention for people, the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments address the issue of idolatry. God has not left the world to wonder what he thinks about idols, what he thinks about things that are made by human hands and then worshipped and served and those things rule over people. He's not left us to wonder about these things. In fact, God says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm the one who has rescued you. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is placed at the very beginning of the list of commandments. I mean, when we look at commandments, we look at them and we say, of course it would be entirely wrong to murder someone. Of course it would be entirely wrong to commit adultery. And on and on it goes in the commandments. But do you realize at the very top of the list is idolatry? God hates idolatry. It is the giving over of ourselves to the things that are made with our own hands. And it's an immeasurable offense to God. It's the consequences of a culture that refuses to to glorify God and to thank Him and to acknowledge Him. And it is the temptation to look more to the works of our own hands for help than God. You know, um, for many of us, it's so easy to sort of skip over the issue of idolatry because we think of things that are made, gods that are made by hands and contorted images of horrible creatures and all that kind of stuff. And, And so we think, well, that has nothing really to do with us. Let me make a point again that idolatry is the temptation to look more to the works of our own hands than to rely on the unseen graces of God. Especially if our stuff seems to work. It's the opposite of living by faith in God and being shaped into His image. It is being reshaped into the image of the idols, the things that we have made. The works of our own hands that are shaping us. Well, what are you talking about, Rick? I'm talking about the religion of the entertainment world, for instance. I'm talking about the things that we have made with our own hands that are really shaping our values. Shaping our character, shaping how we think, shaping how we think the world functions. I'm talking about um, the religion event, the entertainment world that is full of idols. I'm talking about disrespectful Bart Simpson. who has grown a whole generation 
of saucy, disrespectful little children who call people by their first names like he calls his father Homer. You think these idols don't shape our thinking? Does everybody love Raymond? I don't. I don't love Raymond at all. You know why I don't love Raymond? Because Raymond is the complete opposite of how a family should function. Some saucy, bossy wife and a wimpy husband having to ask her if he can go golfing? Do you think that hasn't shaped the family values of our culture? Do you think these idols that we allow to come into our minds and spend hours gazing at don't shape in an opposite contorted direction the glories of God? The Hollywood stories are a different good news, a different gospel. I mean, think about it. The average movie is two hours long, the average Hollywood movie. The average sermon might be 40 minutes long. So if you've gone to a movie this week versus a sermon, you've received more input from the idols of the age than you have from God's truth. So what do you think is shaping you? Shaping your thinking? Shaping your mind? I think Paul could walk into this church and say, this is full of idols. And his heart would be fully distressed. Our, our advertisers are a hotbed of idolatry. The fuel of advertisers is constantly telling you what you need. That evil is not having an iPhone. You think that's not the message that our children are receiving? Looking more to the works of our own hands than to the glories of God. And Paul says, I see your objects of worship. Where you place your time and your money and what shapes your life. And therefore, most people in our culture, the culture of Canada, not the culture of Calvary, I hope, but most people in the culture of Canada have long ago replaced God. And he is an unknown God to them. Paul could go to uh, Parliament Hill instead of Mars Hill. He could go to Capitol Hill instead of Mars Hill and say the very same thing. I see your land is full of idols. And he says, to the unknown God, the God who you long ago replaced, do you realize that you can know him? Paul says, he's the one I want to proclaim to you because I know him. And you can know him too. That, that's, the, that's the first platform he stood on. The emptiness of idolatry replaces God, but I know the God you don't know. And the one that actually you long to know, 
the one that you're chasing after by creating all of these gods around you, I know him. And I want to proclaim him to you. Not only was the city full of idols, but Paul says, I notice you're very religious. In fact, humanity is incurably religious. Our world is full of religion. Religion is simply the belief in the controlling power of the universe. But religion is is the way people try to to reconcile a, a wild world. It's the way people try to put some constructs together, some logic together that will explain the unexplainable or the complexities of the universe around them. And so he looks at the people and he says, I I see that you're very, very religious. You have all kinds of belief systems and explanations on how the world functions, on how the universe is controlled. Now, He happens to be standing, as I said to you, on Mars Hill, which is the god of thunder and war. Mars. To the Greeks, called Ares. That's why it was called the Areopagus, because it was the, 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 the site dedicated to the celebration of the god of thunder and war. Anybody hear that storm last night? I don't usually wake up in storms, but that thing woke me up last night. I'd never heard thunder like that. I thought Canada was at war. And I was thinking, you know, my sermon hit me, and I was like, the God of thunder and war. But here they were, standing. Here Paul was, standing there. See, I see you're very religious. You've you've named... um, You've named gods to try and explain the controlling factors of the world. Ah, yes, war is explained because of Mars, because of Ares. Thunder is explained because of Ares. Ares brings thunder. Ares brings brings war. We are incurably, incurably religious because there's an internal desire in our fallenness, a longing to find who we are and where we're from, and and we need to make sense of this mysterious world. And so people manufacture explanations and systematize them to explain the wonders of the wild world. And Paul wants to present to them here, as we ought to in evangelism, the inadequacy of religion. And the reason religion is inadequate, or when it is inadequate, because it replaces reality. That's what they were doing here. Each of these belief systems were, in fact, a replacement to reality. And so Paul systematically here uh, tackles the whole issue. And, And I want you to notice that in verse 30, the Bible teaches, and Paul certainly proclaims in his sermon, that religion without the real God is ignorance, not worship. Let's make certain we understand that. Notice here, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. God doesn't consider all the various religions of the world worship. He considers them ignorance. There is only one belief system that God considers worship, and that is worship of the living God through Jesus Christ. 
Everything else is called ignorance. So the inadequacy of religion, because it replaces reality. It, it replaces reality rather than discover it. Giving divine attributes to the creation that the living God dominates is ignorant religion. In other words, claiming that thunder has, is, the, is, the, uh, is personified by a God's name is ignorant religion. And I want to tell you that some of the spiritual warfare and evangel evangelism gets very close to this very same thing. But that's a topic for another time. The spirit of anger. You don't personify sin. Sin is the creation of man. Sin is the, the anger is created by me, not by some deity or divinity or supernatural cause. We know that Satan is behind these things. But certain constructs are drifting toward ignorance rather than worship. And so Paul sets out here to systematically demonstrate to them how their religion is replacing reality rather than discovering it. And so he says here in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, he says, your God of war and thunder is a replacement against the God of heavens and good news. You have... You have reduced the reality you have reduced the idea of reality to this to to god uh, the god of thunder when in fact there is one god over all the universe this god of war you say you're ignoring the true reality that there is this god of the gospel a god of good news and so he sets this contrast one after another and he does not live in temples how good, he says to them, is a, is a God you have to build a home for or take care of. That means the car that you have to put in a garage is not a God, and the medicine that you have to put in a refrigerator to take care of is not a God. And, and then he says, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Whoever makes is God. Whoever needs can't be God. That's what Paul distributes here in terms of the culturally elite at the time. And he continues on. He says, from one man he made every nation. The religion of evolution doesn't explain reality. It replaces it. From one man... God made all people. That's the declaration of reality over against the replacement of reality of other kinds of religious thought. And so whatever, and, and he goes on to say, and he made them 
that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the, the times set for them. The era that you live in is determined by God. The exact place where you live, where you were born, is determined by God on purpose. So that to the Greeks who were quite arrogant in the day versus the barbarians of all other uh, ethnic groups. Paul is making the point that reality from God's perspective is that it's not about era, time and place. It's, it's, it's not about race or ethnicity. There, there is no um, race that's superior or inferior to one another. From one man, God made all the people. And it was God who determined where they would live. You don't look at a neighbor over here and say, well, they're an inferior person because they live in that place, or, and I'm a superior person because I'm of this race, or I live in this geography, or I live in this time or this era. No, no, no. God determined exactly when you would live and where you would live. And he goes on to explain why, what the reality of that is. God did this, verse 27, so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. It was purposeful. God placed you where he placed you that in that setting and that time you may take notice of God. He goes on with more reality checks. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. This God enables you to live and move and be. Which one of your idols, Paul could say, could take care of that? Which one of these that you have made and fashioned out of your own hands that are shaping the way you think and the way you believe the universe unfolds, which one of these can cause you to move and live and have your being? He continues on with his reality checks, verse 28 and 29. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. If we are the offspring of God, would our maker be the works of our own hands? Can the offspring make the one they sprung from? I ask you that logical question. Are you able to make your parents? So Paul is simply stating here the, that your religion is replacing reality and you are, you are shaping your life in that direction. You are, you are putting all of your hopes and dreams and, and all of your direction on a religion that replaces reality. He says, I proclaim Jesus Christ. The living God. I know him. I know this God. He's changed my life. He's the God who made everything. He's the God who placed you where he placed you. He's the God who determines all things. He's a purposeful God. He's done this so that you might know him, so that you might reach out to him, so that you might have a relationship with him. Your religion not only replaces reality, it replaces the opportunity for a relationship with that God. That's why religion is inadequate.
And so he asks them, would you rather live a religion that replaces reality, the gods of the age, or would you rather trust in the God of the ages? Which makes more sense? Reality is a real living God who reaches out for relationship. Who you don't know, who you replace, who you deny, I know him, Paul says. I know him. And he is risen from the dead. I, I, don't, think, I don't think we make a big enough deal about that. Jesus is risen from the dead of what our God has done for us in salvation. I just took a look at the clock and it's like, what? <laughs> I, I, I want to talk about this, the, the fact that do we realize in terms of this message that we have for people that when we lay one of our brothers or sisters in a grave, they are going to rise again to life forever? Do we, have we allowed that to impact our lives and the message of our lives and the passion and urgency we have to tell the message to people? That they can have that that themselves, that they can have that for their family, that, that, that if you knew, as Jesus, if you knew what I had, if you knew, you would want it. And so he, he completes this by pointing out how serious this matter is of idolatry and religiosity by the seriousness of sins. He says, in the past, God overlooked this ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You know, two questions sort of leap out of this. If God is so powerful and real and dominant, why does he allow this ignorance in a massive scale worldwide? Why does he allow this? Because the, 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 the poets of the day, the intelligentsia of the day would be simply looking at Paul and saying, well, that's nice, Paul, but, but why doesn't your God do something about it then? Why, why doesn't he come down and smash all these idols? And why doesn't he, why doesn't he take complete charge of things? Why, why is this the way it is? Why does God allow this ignorance then? And Paul says he's overlooked it. He's overlooked it because God is gracious and patient and the God I'm proclaiming to you, Paul says, prefers repentance to judgment. He is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to know him. The reason this God has not exerted judgment on the world is because he longs for people to turn to him. But, Paul says, he has fixed a day when judgment will ultimately come. It has been set in place. A day of justice, he says, is set. The world longs for justice, but they don't understand that the justice that God brings will be on the basis of whether or not you have declared high treason on the living God. That day of justice... And everyone will answer to God first for their life of high treason, replacing God for idols versus trusting in him with our lives. 
What's the proof, Paul says? God the Father raised the judge to life from death. He raised Jesus Christ from the grave, the one who will be given the responsibility of being the ultimate judge. He's already raised him from the dead. That's the proof you're going to get. And this Jesus, who was raised to life from death, will judge the world on the highest charge, the charge of treason against the living God. God, the Lord of glory, has commanded all people to repent. That's what it says in the text. And they will be judged on whether or not they have in this grand crime against God. All other sin, all other crimes in our world are on the basis of high treason to the living God. But here's what the Bible says. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Safe from judgment. Safe for all eternity. So what's the response? You must turn to God, Paul says. Have you turned to him? God gives the gift of salvation to those he gives the gift of faith. The gift to believe in the evidence of irrefutable proof. A living Jesus who was crucified, was buried, and is alive. And what's the proof of that? I know him. I know Jesus. And you know him. That's the proof. We know Jesus Christ. And that's our message. It's not slick. It's not tactical. It's not movie reviews or book reports. It's not trying to understand the nature of the pop culture and trying to become like it. It is preaching Jesus Christ alive, crucified, buried, and raised again. That's the message of salvation. To all who will believe, have you turned to Jesus Christ for your salvation? Our Father, thank you for allowing us to borrow Paul's sermon this morning and revisit it and proclaim it. And Lord, on that day that that sermon was delivered, a few people turned to God. I pray this morning, if there's anyone here, Lord, who has never turned to you, they've been shaped by idols, things made by the hands of people, they've been replacing reality with other beliefs, they've been ignoring sin and judgment. Father, today's the day of salvation. I pray that no one would harden their heart in the hearing of this truth. For I ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Is that the description of your life, that the God of the ages is exalted in your life, is glorified? Let me ask you a couple of questions as we close this morning. Who or what is really shaping your life? The values of your life? 
Where are you investing your time, your energy, and your money in terms of values and thinking? I apologize for going a little bit long this morning, but I'm a lot shorter than the movies that we're watching. <laughs> and then in the areas of reality, where are you going for reality? Where do you find reality? In books, in documentaries, in conversation, or in the Word of God? In God's Word is shape, is, is the description of the reality of the universe. And then, is your heart right with God? Is your heart right with Jesus Christ? Are you ready for His return, for His coming back? The world is in a horrible, horrible state. The Lord could be coming soon. Are you ready for that? I'm not so certain that Paul built a ramp to the culture as much as he built an off-ramp to the culture in this great sermon. And he told the people to turn from the culture which was stealing their hearts and minds and setting them up for a disastrous eternity and telling them to turn to the living God for life and joy and eternal life and salvation. Let's bow our heads. Is there anyone here this morning that would say, you know, that message was for me. I have been allowing the culture to shape me. I've got other gods in my life, other realities. And I need to turn wholeheartedly to the living Christ. Is there anybody here this morning who would say that? Just slip your hand up. Yes? Okay. Yep. Yep. Father, the work of your spirit is powerful. The work of your word is powerful. Sharper than a two-edged sword. It gets right to our soul. Lord God, I pray this morning that we would have no other gods before you. I pray, Father, that only the living God would shape our values and our thinking. I pray that we would have no other reality but the reality in Christ, who is reality. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray, our Father, that we would understand the seriousness of sin and that eternal judgment awaits those who do not turn to the living Christ. And that our passion and urgency and sense of urgency in our own lives and toward the lives of people who we know and love would be to take the gospel untempered, untainted, Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen again, at the right hand of God the Father, coming again for us. Oh God, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.